Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand this morning. God is so good to us. He has given us breath and life and strength and has enabled us to be here this morning, to gather together in His presence, to receive of Him everything He has for us this morning. Amen. He is such a good God to us, and we trust that no matter what's going on in our lives, whether it seems good, bad, or indifferent, that if we place it in God's hands, it will always lead to our best, our very good. All things work together for good to those who love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Amen. He suffered on a cross and He died in our place. If we can't trust someone like that, who gave literally everything for us, everything, Amen. I am so thankful for Him today, the relationship that we have with Him, that He established with us, a covenant relationship with our Creator and our Savior. Amen. We have a lot of needs this morning, uh, certainly around our nation, around our world. Uh, We have people that we're praying for here locally. Uh, Please remember all of them. Uh, Brother Parker, Sister Parker, they're out of town uh, ministering at uh, Brother Jacob's church. Uh, Let's pray for our bishop this morning. Keep him in prayer that God would use him. Amen. And let's pray for us, the service this morning, that we are gathered in together. Amen. God has a plan for this service. This is His service. We are His people. Amen. So let's pray that God's perfect will would be accomplished here this morning. Lord Jesus, we come together before You. We gather together in Your presence this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There is no one like You. Not in all the earth. We delight ourselves in the God of our salvation this morning. We worship and we praise our Creator, our Redeemer, the Lover of our soul, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the Beginning, the End, which was and which is and which is to come, the Almighty, Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify You today. I'm excited today to receive all that You have for us. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us with a love we'll never comprehend. Your agape love. Hallelujah, Jesus. Everything that we face, everything that we go through, every circumstance, every situation leads us ever closer, causes us to become more like You. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus, for all that You have in store for us here this morning. We give glory and honor unto the Almighty today. We worship and we praise our Redeemer. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are our King. You are our Lord and our God, and there is none else. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are exalted in the heavens. You are the highest. You are the greatest. Thank You, Jesus for this opportunity You've given us this morning to enter into Your presence. I do not esteem it lightly. I do not take it for granted that we don't have only permission. We have invitation this morning to enter into Your presence. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing this morning. You can be seated. We're glad that our ladies are back. We're going to say more about that in the second service. We're going to hear from them. I'm excited to see what they have to say about what happened to them this weekend. Amen. But before it's turned over to them, I want to say thank you and glad you're back. (laughs) Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to continue. I was hoping to conclude... uh, our kind of subtopic on the doctrine of God that He is one, uh, but uh, we're going to have to break that up into two as well. However, uh, it's good stuff. Our scripture text for this uh, particular portion is Colossians 2 and 9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, we started this with a historical 
exposition on the, the historical aspects of oneness and Trinity. And uh, we started off by saying that in the first century, even into the second century, there was no concept of Trinity. Everyone thought and believed, uh, looked at the Godhead as, as God being one. All the Old Testament uh, people of God, the Jews, the Hebrews, they always believed in a strict monotheism. And understanding that the New Testament is built on that foundation. The New Testament comes forth out of the Old. Uh, you know, there are Christians today that believe that, well, you know, the Old Testament, that was the Jews, and, and the New Testament, it's, it's for us. And we don't really need to pay too much attention to the Old Testament. I vehemently disagree with that. Uh, the Old Testament is vital. We can't truly understand the New Testament unless we first understand the Old. And so, uh, we went into the historical aspects of it, the, the development, uh, going through the, the ideas and the writings of, of Origen and Tertullian and uh, Augustine, and finally the, the, form, the formal uh, codification of that doctrine in the Council of Nicaea and then in the Council of Constantinople, where that was actually, in the Consul, Council of Constantinople, it was actually codified and made uh, dogma of the, the church. But before that, there, there, I mean, there was huge contention. And even if you look at the writings of uh, Tertullian, there was the majority, according to him, the majority of Christians believed in uh, modalism or oneness. And so, uh, we didn't touch too much on the first century church, though. I was going to leave that for, you know, what does the Bible have to say about it? And that's where we're at today. So, uh, if we look, though, first at the Old Testament, because the New Testament is built on the Old, we see Deuteronomy 6.4. We all know this. It's the, the beginning or part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And I thought... I was considering just giving you that massive list of Scriptures and then uh, we can go on with something else. But I want to read through all of these and with the express purpose of allowing God to speak to us because through His Word. Because it is, it's absolutely important that we understand who God is. It was His express purpose. Designed. It was his. It was his express will for us to know who he is, to have a relationship with him, to know him. And we can't know him. We can't know him in truth if we believe something false about him. If I'm in a relationship with you, and I hear something that isn't true about you, and I start believing that. I'm going to start formulating opinions and ideas about your character and about, about who you are, how you operate, that aren't true. And so it's important for us to understand exactly how God has revealed to us. If He has revealed to us that He is three, then that's what we need to believe. But Scripture needs to be the basis of that. Like Martin Luther said, sola scriptura. The Scriptures alone. That's where we determine truth. That's where we determine doctrine. That's where we determine what is and what is not. Especially when it relates to God. We're not going to discover God through our own intellect. We're not going to discover Him through our own ideas and philosophies and, and running tests in a laboratory. We can't do that. But He has revealed Himself to us just exactly how He designed it. Alright, so... Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Exodus 20 and 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. Exodus 20 and 5, Thou shalt not bow thyself down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate Me. Now when he says he's a jealous God, it doesn't mean he's petty. It doesn't mean he's insecure. Uh, it means that the best thing for us to do is to worship Him and Him alone. 
Why? I mean, the old saying, it's not bragging if it's true. Right? God is all-powerful. He created and He owns everything. That's not boasting. That's not arrogance. That's, that's the facts. He's worthy, inherently worthy of worship. Deuteronomy 32 and 39 says, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple connotations here. Obviously, he says, there's no God with me. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Well, if there were a couple more co-equal, co-eternal uh, gods with him, they could. But there's not. Second Samuel 7.22 says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So the prophet here is stating, there is, according to our knowledge, according to our understanding of Scripture to this point, there is one God. There is no one else. And you're it. Psalm 86.10 says, For thou art great and dost wondrous things, thou art God alone. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. We're going to see a lot of these verses that come from Isaiah. He is known... Uh, by Christians favorably, by Jews not so favorably, as the Old Testament evangelist. Isaiah 44 and 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44 and 8 says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. I think if somebody would know, it would be God. He doesn't know of any. Isaiah 44 and 24 says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Isaiah 45 and 6 that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22 says, Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the end of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. It seems to me like he's trying to get something across. And I, I know that sounds facetious, but I am not being facetious. I'm trying to make a point. God is... This isn't some mystery that we need to dig out of the original Hebrew, the original Greek, uh, sequestered in there between Daniel's 69th and 70th week and, and all of this stuff. This is something he's trying to throw in our face. Okay, he is, he is trying to make this point as clear and as plain as possible. Isaiah 46 and 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. That means no co-equal, co-eternal, etc. Isaiah 42 and 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48 and 11, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? The glory is reserved for this one God and this one God alone. 
Isaiah 37 and 16 says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So these two verses are saying there's one Creator. Only one. Only one was present at creation. And we're going to get into some Scriptures that seem to contradict that later on. But these are going to be important verses in that analysis. Zechariah 14 and 9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and His name one. We see that He's referred to as the Holy One in the Old Testament. Psalm 71.22 says, I will also praise Thee with the psaltery, even Thy truth, O my God. Unto Thee will I sing with the harp, O Thou Holy One of Israel. Psalm 78.41 says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 1.4 says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backwards. Isaiah 5.19 says, That say, Let them make speed and hasten His work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Isaiah 5.24 says, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff. So their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. There are some Trinitarian scholars that, that attempt to explain these verses by stating God meant to emphasize His oneness as opposed to pagan deities but that He still existed in a plurality. Okay? Um, if that's true, if that's true, then why do the Jews even today believe so vehemently in a strict monotheism? If God was, was simply trying to distinguish Himself from the polytheism of the surrounding countries, then... How far off did the Jews get? I mean, if that was God's intent, the Jews truly missed it. Uh, because they, they believe even today in a strict monotheism. Uh, a lot of this is taken, uh, well, from a few sources, but, but primarily David Bernard's book on, on the oneness of God. And in that book, he, uh, he relates a story. He was, he was in Israel, and he wanted to buy one of these phylacteries. Uh, the command of God in the Shema that you need to bind it on your the, your forehead and on your you know wrist or and and so they 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 take that literally they have scriptures written out and there's a, there's a process and a, they have to follow for that and and they put them in these little phylacteries and, and tie them around themselves and Brother Bernard was trying to buy one he said no we don't sell these to Christians and the reason they wouldn't sell them to Christians is because they have a problem with the Trinity. And all Christians believe in the Trinity. Brother Bernard, well, he explained, well, that's not entirely true. Um, we believe in the oneness of God. And uh, so then he was able to convince the, the merchant to sell this to him. Uh, but they definitely they do not believe in the Trinity. Okay, why didn't God make clear to us that He was actually a plurality of gods instead of one? I mean, the language that He uses all through the Old Testament uh, seems to indicate something else. Now, let's assume for a moment that none of us have heard of oneness and we've not heard of Trinity. Okay? We've not heard of either one. We don't know anything about uh, God in that aspect. What kind of language do you think God would use to describe what He was? That He was one God or that He was a plurality of gods? 
What kind of language would God use to let His people know which one of those was indeed true? He would use, maybe, something like none or none else. No one else. None but me. By myself. Alone. One. Which is exactly what he uses in the Old Testament. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but there are four instances in the Old Testament where God is referred to in a plurality. And we're going to go over those. But there are close to a thousand references of God where He's spoken of as one. Now, they, they focus on those four verses. We focus on the, the almost thousand verses. But we're going to, we're going to, we're going to cover those. I just, before we continue, I, I want to make sure that everyone understands that. The New Testament teaches that God is one. Okay, again, the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old, and it repeats its teachings about the nature of God many times. We read that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to cancel it, not to abolish it, but He came as the culmination of that dispensation, the fulfillment of it. The type and the shadow was going to uh, transform into the real, the true. Jesus believed in and taught Deuteronomy 6.4. He even said when questioned that it was the first of all the commandments. Romans 3 and 30 says this, Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. Galatians 3.20 says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Ephesians 4.6 says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. 1 John 2 and 20 says, But ye have an uncertain, I'm sorry, you have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Again, the Holy One. Revelation 4 and 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Okay. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is God. He is God. We read this initially in the Old, the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now this is, and again, please understand, when there is a difference of doctrine, uh, it's, it's, easy, it's easy on both sides for us to chuckle at one another and, and kind of, ah, you poor schlep. You just you don't understand. It's, it's easy to fall into that. But we need to understand here that uh, you all know I was born and raised Lutheran. Lutherans are Trinitarian. God loved me as a Lutheran Trinitarian. He died for me as a Lutheran Trinitarian. Okay? Uh, I didn't have all truth yet, but God was leading me toward that. Uh, there are people who sincerely love God and believe that God is three gods. But they love God. They serve God with all their heart. They serve Him to the extent of their knowledge. Okay? And God's purpose for all of us for all of us, is to bring us from where we are at present to where He wants us to be. Okay, 
So we need to understand that, that we are ministers in that process. If I know more than someone else, it's my responsibility to try to let them know, to teach truth to them. If you guys know more than I do, then I feel like it's your responsibility to let me know. Or someone else to let me know. I want to know if there's more out there. I want it. So, when we're speaking to someone who believes differently than we do, who understands Scripture a little bit differently, we need to love them and respect them. God brought them to this place that they're at. And uh, just like God brought me to the place that I'm at here today. I don't have anything to boast of or brag about because I understand something differently in the Scripture than someone else. That's not something that I need to be boasting about or, or feeling, well, I feel good about it. I'm glad, but, but it wasn't me. God reveals truth to us. The Scripture says He reveals light to us as we walk in light. Paraphrased. So, this Scripture here, uh, that I, I like using this, this Scripture to point out the fact that Jesus is the Father. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, which reads this And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So according to these verses, God is literally wrapping himself in flesh and dwelling among us. Isaiah 11 and 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Dropping down to verse 10 of chapter 11. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. We see that the Messiah is going to be a branch and a root. A branch because the Messiah will descend from Jesse as a son. There's a physical lineage here. The son. The man. He's also going to be the root because Jesus is God, the creator of all life, including Jesse. So we see him signified as both. Isaiah 35, 4-6 says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. This sounds significantly like what Jesus said in Luke 7.22. Speaking and answering the disciples of John the Baptist. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Isaiah 40 and 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Fulfilled in Matthew 3, 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Prepare ye the way of who? The Lord, the Old Testament God, Yahweh. Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Luke 2.15 and 16 says, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away, from them into heaven the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, 
and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. The New Testament states that Jesus is God. John 20 and 28 says, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood? Jesus had blood. Titus 2 and 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One and the same. Second Peter 1 and 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One and the same. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Okay, Ephesians 3 and 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 calls it the temple of God. But Ephesians 3, 17 says that Christ dwells in us. Contradiction? More easily explained uh, by believing that Jesus Christ is God. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in Him, Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 1 and 19 says, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Again, referring to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 and 10 says, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. We are complete in Jesus Christ. Whatever we need, whatever we have need of, we, are, we find that need met in Jesus. Because in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When we get into the names of God, the covenant names, the compound names we find in the Old Testament, and we relate them to the new, Jesus Christ, uh, like Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, all of these uh, compound names we find in the Old Testament, we find them all wrapped up in one name now, in Jesus. In Jesus we have healing. In Jesus we find our righteousness. In Jesus we find salvation. We don't have all of these compound covenant names anymore. They have all been wrapped up into one. Amen. First Timothy three fifteen and sixteen says, "But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up." into glory. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14 says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Trinitarians use the same exact verse to describe the exact opposite thing. Okay? Uh, we will talk about this in other verses in the next lesson, Lord willing. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. Wasn't that His plan from the very beginning? All the way back to the time of Genesis, chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. From that moment on, God instituted His plan of reconciliation, His plan of salvation, that culminated and was made complete in Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him, or revealed Him. Hebrews 1, 1 and 3 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners... I love how this is written. It just sounds cool. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Now, I think we're going to be speaking about sitting down at the right hand of God as well. That is priestly language. That is, uh, that is figurative. It's, it, it, uh, it means that He is ascending to power. He's ascending to authority. We'll talk more about that. Colossians 1 and 15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature. Speaking of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Hebrews 10 and 20 says, By a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. Genesis 22 and 8 says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Hebrews 10 and 5, uh, referring to this, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. John 1, 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own in the form of Jesus Christ, and his own received him not. So we see from these passages of Scripture that uh, God was manifest in the flesh as Jesus Christ. Now this is important to understand because there are uh, there certainly were groups even even in the apostles' day uh, they believed that uh, all flesh was bad, spirit is good, and this uh, uh, this Gnosticism was a it was heresy and so the apostles were were already trying to fight false doctrine so it's important for us to understand that god manifests himself in the flesh the problem one writer said uh, dr david norris says this in his work uh, i am a pentecostal oneness theology he says that the, the problem has never been oneness or trinity the problem is, how do we answer the question of God coming to us in the form of a man? How do we explain the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That's the issue at, at the heart of all of this. It's not as God one, as God three, as God two. Um, a better case can be made for two, historically and scripturally. Uh, but that's not the issue. The issue is the incarnation. How do we explain God in flesh? How do we explain that Jesus is all God and all man? That's the issue at the heart of all of this. Okay. Getting back to our Scriptures. Colossians 2.9. We've already read. Uh, we see in Malachi 2.10. Have not we all one Father? We've read this too. Hath not one God created us? God is our Father. So is the Father in Jesus. Isaiah 9.6 calls Jesus the everlasting Father. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Colossians 2.9 In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John 8 and 19 says, Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. John 8 and 24 continues, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, 
ye shall die in your sins. Verse 25, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. John 8.27 says, They understood not that He spake to them of the Father. So it seems to me that it's absolutely vital we understand who Jesus is. We need to understand. We don't need to understand what mom and dad taught us. We don't need to understand uh, what this or that denomination or this denomination is teaching us. We need to know what the Scriptures say about it. That's what we need to understand. And I've said it a thousand times. I'm going to continue to say it. If anything comes across this pulpit outside of this book, it's wrong. If it contradicts this book, it's wrong. It's got to be found in, in Scripture. That is our source of doctrine. This is our source of truth. What God has revealed to us, He has revealed to us through Scripture. Scripture alone. Okay, John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. Some try to assert that Jesus means one here the same way that a husband and a wife are one. That they are in agreement. They are in covenant relationship. And there is a connotation like that Attached to this verse, definitely. But, uh, let's look at other Scriptures and see if they support that interpretation. John 12.45 says, He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. John 14 and 7 says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. John 14 and 8 said, Philip saith unto him, Lord, so is the Father, and it sufficeth us. 14, 9 through 11 says, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, so is the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Jesus is quite emphatic here. We're one and the same. I'm in Him. He's in me. And again, this is the problem of the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's the mystery here. That's the mystery that Jesus is trying to reveal here. John 10.38 says, but if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. John 2, 19-21 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. But in Acts 2.24, we read, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Who raised up Jesus? Did Jesus raise up Jesus, or did God raise up Jesus? Yes. Yes. John 16 and 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Here we're reading, Jesus is sending the Comforter. John 14 and 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said un unto you. So who sent the Comforter? John 16, 7 says, Jesus is going to send it. John 14, 26 says, the Father is going to send it. John 14, 14 says, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 23 says, and in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. 
So who answers prayer? Ephesians 5.26 says that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. Jesus sanctifies. Jude 1 says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So who sanctifies us? All of these things are easily understood if we, if we understand that Jesus had a dual nature. But He's not two gods. Okay? We always use the, the analogy of offices. You know, uh, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost. Jesus had a dual nature. He was both fully God and He was fully man. And He was fully man like, like you and I are, are human. Like you and I are human beings. That's how, he was a, that's how He was a human being. He wasn't a superman. He wasn't ubermensch. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a demigod. He was fully man. And He was fully God. That's the mystery of godliness. That's the mystery that we, we need to reconcile. The mystery of the incarnation of Jesus. Not whether He was one, two, or three. Okay, Trinitarian verses in Scripture. We'll start off with, uh, with some of these. Understanding the idea of plurality in the New Testament. Okay, first Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Now interestingly, this is the only salutation in the New Testament that mentions the Holy Ghost. The only one. <clears throat> there are about twenty salutations given that mention God and Jesus. And no mention of the Holy Ghost. That's why I was saying earlier, it's, you can make a stronger case for two gods. And historically, when you, when you read about the, the, the development of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost, the poor Holy Ghost was kind of an afterthought. Uh, they, they eventually worked Him in there uh, because they had to. He's, he's mentioned. But, but it was kind of an afterthought. And, uh, anyway, so, when we look at the Old Testament priestly blessing, now, this, is, this gets into uh, the idea of covenant. This gets into the idea of the, the, the priestly blessing, pronouncing the name of God over the congregation. And this is, uh, when, when, when the Bible says uh, of Enos, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That wasn't just calling on Him in prayer. That was, that was a covenant relationship that was being described there. Pronouncing the name of God over someone. In covenant relationship, in covenant worship. That was what the priests did in the Old Testament. They pronounced the name of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a priestly blessing. He, they were, the priest was literally pronouncing, calling down the name of God onto the congregation. And where the name of God is, the presence of God is. So when you mention the name of God, His presence comes with it. That's the priestly blessing. And there's a whole... <laughs> There's an awful lot to that, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. But, uh, for purposes of our study here today, uh, the Old Testament priestly blessing is adapted in the New Testament, uh, which again would literally call down the name of Yahweh upon the people in covenant relationship and in covenant worship. In Numbers 6, 27 that's what I just quoted, the Lord bless thee, the, keep thee. Uh, verse 27 says, 
And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. The priests were literally commanded to place his name upon the people. To call down the name of Yahweh onto the people. And then God would bless them. They would greet each other. Uh, kind of a, a, an extension of this priestly blessing. They would greet each other by saying, Peace be unto you. Shalom. Peace be unto you. That was modified in the New Testament. They added grace. Grace be unto you and peace. Philippians 1 and 2 says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So, the Jews in the first century church, they knew the Father. They knew Yahweh. They understood the Old Testament law. They had uh, that level of covenant relationship with Him. They understood the, the priests uh, and all of the, the sacrificial system, the, the feasts and all of that. They knew about all of that. But now there was something new, something more revealed to them through Jesus Christ. This incarnation of the Old Testament God. They understood God covenantally according to the Old Testament law, but Jesus was new to this dispensation. And that's why we read in, in the Gospels, Jesus is trying to get them to understand there's something new coming. This is all going to be fulfilled in Me. The Old Testament law, all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts, all of the thou shalt and thou shalt not will be fulfilled in Me. There's a new dispensation coming. A dispensation of grace. The apostles were saying, in effect, peace comes through the office of God as Father. But now we can receive grace from God through the office of the Son. Through the office of the Incarnation. Jesus Christ. We even call the dispensation the dispensation of grace. So when we see this plurality uh, in the New Testament, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we see that a lot. Understand it that way. They are pronouncing a priestly blessing but they, in addition to the Old Testament priestly blessing, they are adding on the new dispensation of grace to that priestly blessing. Okay. Old Testament verses. We're just about out of time. So, I think we can cover this one. Yeah, we'll try it. Genesis 1.26 And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now again, as I stated earlier in the lesson, there are hundreds and hundreds, almost a thousand references to God in the Old Testament, in the singular. There are four verses in the Old Testament that refer to God in the plural. This one, Genesis 3.22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay. Continues on. Genesis 11.7 says, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. Let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And Isaiah 6 and 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Okay, now, again, we have these four verses that describe God as a plurality or use a plural noun in the uh, Old Testament Hebrew language. And we have almost a thousand references to God as in the singular, a singular noun, Hebrew language. So, we have a few options here. Either these 
four verses are right and the almost thousand are wrong. Uh, the thousand are right and these four verses are, are well, I shouldn't say wrong, but describing something different. Or we got them all wrong in our heads and we need to find a third option. Those are the only options I see here. <clears throat> we read all kinds of Old Testament Scriptures stating that God in no... The language God used was pretty straightforward, in my opinion. That He's one. That there are no other gods beside Him. There, are no, there is no Savior beside Him. He stretched out the heavens by Himself. He created the, the world by Himself. Etc., etc., etc. So, now it looks like we have a contradiction. And my presupposition is that there are no contradictions in Scripture. If that's true, if it is true, then we're wasting our time here because the Bible is not God's Word. It's man's Word. If there are contradictions, then pack it up, folks. Uh, don't bother coming back. Because this is false. And we're wasting our time here. <clears throat> but if there are no contradictions, and it is God's Word, uh, then we need to reconcile this, don't we? And this is an honest question. It is. There are some, uh, we're going to look at some explanations to this. There doesn't seem to be a consensus as to what this is referring to. Now, the Jews traditionally interpret this verse as God speaking with the angels at creation. Okay? That's the Jewish interpretation. 1 Kings 22, 19-22 says, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Okay, here we see God speaking with angels concerning this matter. Fallen angels. Angels. <clears throat> Not 100% sure which one is which here. But uh, in any case, other spirits. Not deity. Because these spirits were asking permission of the Lord. Giving, uh, giving ideas, as it were. So here we see God speaking with the angels. Okay, Job 38, 4-7 says, Wherefore wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, this very specifically in the Hebraic uh, refers to angels. Okay, so we know that angels were present during the creation week, during the creation event. So it's possible that he could have been speaking with angels. Another explanation given is God was taking counsel with his own will. Ephesians 1 and 11 says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It would be similar in effect to someone saying, hmm, let's see here, when they're considering a problem. Let us see here. Uh, but I'm talking to myself. You know, that's kind of the idea here. Some describe this as the majestic or literary plural. Okay, in formal speaking and writing, the speaker or writer will often refer to themselves in the plural, especially if the speaker is royalty. We see Daniel 2.36, he does this. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Well, only Daniel gave the interpretation. There was no we here to speak of. It was just Daniel. But he referred to himself in the plural. 
another explanation is the plural pronoun is used to agree with the use of the plural noun Elohim. Because there's a plural noun used, uh, the idea is that a plural pronoun, us, was used to agree with that. Okay? Uh, the last one is this passage describes God's foreknowledge of the future arrival of the Son, much like a pro- uh, prophetic passages in the Psalm. Uh, understanding that God does not live in time and see all things as present. Genesis 17 and 5 says, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Well, not yet he didn't. Isaac, was, Isaac hadn't been born here yet. It was still a year away. <clears throat> but uh, he pronounced it as if it already happened. Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made thee a father, referring to Genesis 17.5, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickened the dead, and calleth those things which be not, as though they were. 1 Peter 1.19 and 20 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of the Lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I'm sorry I'm moving so fast. Um, but these are, uh, these are possible explanations. And to be perfectly frank with you, I find it frustrating that uh, there's no agreement here. Some people will say one. Some people will say the other. Uh, what I know for sure is that there can be no contradiction of Scripture. Okay? Uh, that simply cannot be. Because if there is, then this whole thing is in vain. I mean, that's what that leads to. Uh, so, there is no contradiction of Scripture. Uh, so, we need to reconcile this somehow. The clear teaching of Scripture is that God is one. Old Testament, New Testament, historically. The clear teaching of Scripture is that God is one. Not a plurality, but one. And so, that's how this needs to be reconciled. With the clear teaching of Scripture. Not church tradition, not church history, not man's opinion or ideas. Not denominal teaching either. And I, I want to emphasize that. We're in the UPCI. We have specific dogma and doctrines just like any other denomination. But those dogmas and those doctrines need to come directly from Scripture. Not church tradition. Just as a way of aside, for a while there was this thing against men wearing beards. Okay? That was preached and it was taught like it was a part of holiness. Okay? Uh, I don't find that in Scripture. It was a reaction to a social event that that was taking place at the time. Uh, Maybe good, maybe bad, maybe indifferent. I don't know. I wasn't a part of that. But today it's irrelevant. I don't see it in Scripture. So I have no problem with men wearing beards. I prefer you didn't wear it all scraggly and icky. But uh, but fair enough, okay? Um, so we got to find it in Scripture. Amen. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue this. We're going to look at uh, hopefully every Scripture that I can find uh, that uh, Trinitarians use to, to explain the Trinity. And we will be uh, walking through those. Amen. Let's all stand.